I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Tell Me Tales Podcast. Thanks for tuning in for another week. You might be able to tell my voice that I'm a bit husky. I've uh, been back at work for one week and it's knocked me around massive. I think from going from six weeks of talking to like three or five people a day to speaking with like 60 and raising my voice and changing my tones and yeah, being with six and seven year olds, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's banged me up a bit, but I think I'll be fine after a couple of days of uh, recovery over the weekend. This week's conversation, Tell Me Your Tales, is with Sarah Walker, and I've known Sarah for about five years, I think, but had absolutely no idea about her history with eating disorders and um, anorexia in particular, and just didn't even know that this had been a part of her life, so I really appreciate that she could come on the show and open up and talk me through it, because it's a... It's a world that I don't see too much of, but you kind of know it's there. And we talk about how it kind of gets ignored a bit in the health system and um, the funding of it. And probably one of the big things that grabbed my attention was the disordered eating I have. Um, Yeah, I think there's a few athletes that this will affect as well. The disordered eating where you're not eating enough to... Um, for your body to sustain what it's doing and it's definitely something that's pretty uh, prevalent in athletes and I think it's something that a lot of people will uh, yeah just think about after they hear Sarah talking about it. Thanks for tuning in again, thanks to Sarah for being so open with her time. Next week I I may miss a week, I'm not 100% sure if I'm going to have a show next week, I'm off to Japan and a bit busy but I'm hoping to make something work, regardless though there'll be an inside running show so um, if there's no tell me tales, it'd definitely be an inside running. Enjoy this chat, guys, and talk soon. Okay, Sarah Walker, welcome to Tell Me a Tales podcast. Thanks for joining me. Um, yeah, really looking forward to having this conversation. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's funny that we've. Oh, I'm trying to think when I was running this morning how long I've known you for, and I think maybe four or five years through the Geelong region cross country. And uh, yeah, I remember having breakfast with you once in Geelong. But some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, I had absolutely no idea that you'd experienced in your life. 
Yeah, probably most people in my life now don't know about my life sort of 20 years ago, which is in stark contrast to now. So um, it's good to be able to chat with you about it. And I think it would be about five years, kind yeah. of like early days at Geelong region. Yeah. I remember being at Gels Park with you on a relay. Um, yeah, about five years ago. Yeah, I think that was, and I was really like starry-eyed because you were Rowan Walker's sister. Not that I want to, <laughs> yeah, you're not coming on the show because you're Rowan Walker's sister, but someone I really looked up to and then, yeah, just how you guys kind of embraced new people in the team and were super friendly and it was, um, yeah, just a great culture to be around. Yeah, um, and I don't mean be, I don't mind being known as Rowan Walker's sister. Pretty proud of my brother. <laughs> yeah, he's a very amazing athlete. Hey, do you want to maybe introduce yourself? You know how this works, and tell me your tales. And yeah, feel free to go uh, in any direction you please. Okay. Well, I'm 41. First and foremost, I'm a mum to my eight-year-old son Ewan, and I'm partner to Paul. Um, I work in the health area uh, with the College of Anaesthetists in Melbourne. Um, with regard to running, I, um, I run a little bit. I mostly cross-train, though, uh, and I help manage the Geelong Region Cross Country Club with um, very valuable help from Brett Coleman. Um, I'm also a Level 2 running coach, not that I use my coaching skill that much. Um, and I speak to you today as someone who had an eating disorder sort of 20, 22 years ago and, and bring that experience to you for the chat. Yeah, thanks for that. And um, maybe let's go start with running. So was running a big thing in your life when you were younger? Was that where the eating disorder kind of originated? or To be honest, I'd say ballet dancing. Yeah. All I wanted to do as a primary school student was be a ballerina. My life rotated around going to ballet class and wanted to dance for the Australian Ballet Company. Um, that was primary school's focus. But having said that, that's obviously an activity that's really orientated around uh, physical appearance and a small build. So, yeah, the seeds were probably sown back then. Yeah, it's funny that, like, dancing's still so um, popular. We have young young girls at school now, like, working in primary school and mm -hmm. a lot of them do it after school. And, and you're right, like... Yeah, we've got friends and their daughters will be, you know, that's exactly what we want to do when we grow up. We just want to be a dancer and it's a be-all and end-all. And you can see how you could start, uh, I guess, cutting corners with your, your diet and stuff to try to achieve those goals. Yeah, it became, I probably, it was probably my first obsession. I, um, mm. My personality would suggest I'm really obsessional and that will become more and more obvious as the conversation goes on. <laughs> but um, it was... I be yeah became quite obsessional about it, but I guess the whole appearance orientated side didn't really kick in until after I sort of gave it up. And I gave it up when I was in year eight because I felt I wasn't good enough at it, um, and that I was also feeling quite guilty about how much it was costing my parents to send me to multiple lessons a week. But mostly, I gave up because I was like, oh, I'm not good enough anymore. So that's where the self-doubt type stuff comes in and the low self-esteem. I also, at the time, said I'm giving it up in order to take up running a bit more. Yeah, right. And did it get to a stage where you're just like, like, do you do competitions or shows in ballet and stuff and you just noticed that you were a cut below the rest of people and you couldn't um, be obsessed in that area to make it as a living and a career, I guess? Um, I we did concerts. I didn't do any competitions. We had exams every year. The irony is, Brady, I, I 
did super well. I got honours certificates for every exam I did and um, where I was really good at the athletic side of ballet but where I sort of fell down was the point work. So, you know, the shoes, the blocks in the end where you're standing on your toes. Yeah. That's where um, I felt like I was failing and that I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, so, yeah, it was. I was actually achieving really good marks and exams. So just for me, it wasn't good enough. I didn't feel like I was good enough. So it was that self-doubt. Yeah, and year eight kind of hormones and boys well, and high school and all of a sudden to have a bit of a, a disappointment in your life, that uh, can obviously spiral into quite a few uh, negative kind of impacts. Oh, definitely. And tr- I was trying to find where I fit in so that I was losing this place that I thought I fit into. So that's a, that's a tricky place to be. Yeah, well, it's all that. I was talking with Josh about it yesterday. Like, it's that identity and you're known as, you know, Sarah, the ballet student or the ballerina or whatever, and that's what you spend your time doing. And when that disappears and you're not really sure where you're going in life. Yep, absolutely. And then, you know, wanted to sort of find my place elsewhere and, and never really found where I should be. So felt like a little felt a little bit lost in those years but like I said before I was achieving really good things at school and in social groups and so on so it was very much an insecurity in my head not anything that other people would have noticed yeah right and you spoke about like having running on the side there so did you jump a bit more into that world yeah I really I did quite well at things like the athletics and the cross countries without any training and People kind of encouraged me in that area and so I said, yeah, I wish I could run like you. And I'm like, what do you mean? I just, you know, I don't understand what you mean by that. I just get out there and have a go. Um, so I did try and get myself into that. But funnily enough, I when I sort of took it on a bit more seriously by the end of high school, I developed really bad shin splints and it was, um, it's kind, it was kind of the first injury I'd gotten the first time that I'd been prevented from doing that. So I... Uh, while I was active, didn't take it too seriously. Yeah, and then was the so we're still kind of talking year eight, year nine now. Like when did the eating disorder stuff kind of start kicking in? Yeah, I distinctly remember going to my mum maybe in year nine and saying, "Mum, I'm going to be a vegetarian because vegetarians have forty percent forty percent less chance of getting cancer." Yeah, right. So you're pretty uh, under it. Yeah, I so I I'd sort of was always interested in health and that sort of thing and went, bang, well, I need to be a vegetarian. And that was step number one in the restricting of food and the um, the spiral down. I mean, early days, and not everyone who's going to become a vegetarian is going to go down that path, but the whole set of biological, psychosocial circumstance for me really triggers that. That's number one point for me. And was there anything like ethical about being a vegetarian or were you just constantly like just health kind of reasons for yourself? It was more health kind of reasons. The ethical stuff, like it was a nice byproduct, I guess, but it was more, oh, meat's really high in calories. Oh, if I get rid of the meat, oh, that yeah. And that becomes a control issue. Mm. That's uh, that's interesting, isn't it? And then, so what was the next step? Was it just continue that vegetarian lifestyle for a couple of years? Yeah, look, I remember getting really, really routine with food. So I remember in year 12, my mum giving me exactly the same food every day at my request, nothing to do with her and her fabulous 
cooking or anything. But um, and then it became well, uh, perhaps I don't need cheese anymore. Perhaps or can't have any high fat products. Perhaps I should let go of dairy altogether. So that incremental cutting out of food groups. Um, mind you, I'm always, I've always been someone on the lower end of the healthy weight range. So I remained a healthy weight during this time, but the headspace got more and more chaotic. Yeah, and was the I guess what were you looking at for your purpose at that stage? Like, if it wasn't for um, you know, doing the dancing or performing at a higher level with the running, was it just totally body image that if you're you you're thinner thinner you were happier? Um, I'd say it was more around feeling like I could control something. Yeah, right. So I, was, I was never one of those people with an eating disorder who might weigh thirty kilos and go look how fat I am. That mm. was never me. Um. I always knew I was on the lower end of that sort of healthy weight range. So it was more to do with control. And the big word that came out for me when I was in therapy was I just felt completely inadequate as a person. Yeah. And what do you put that all? Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, like, what do you put that down to? Like, you sound like academically you're going well and socially and like the weight, as you said, like still in that healthy range, but at the bottom of it. So what do you think that was? It's just my personality. I think that as I grew up, I perhaps, I don't know, I just didn't have that feeling of self, self-worth self develop in the way it should have. So it's a whole mix of biological, social, psychological. It's multifactorial. And where one person might go down the path and be able to steer themselves out, I went down that path and it was catastrophic. Yeah. So it's just it's to do with how the how the personality is in the in the person I think. Yeah right. And then so how did this all progress? Like did you hit rock rock bottom or yeah? What were you yeah. like going through like the late teens and early twenties? Well, year twelve proved incredibly disappointing for me. I was again someone who achieved honors marks in all through high school. Like you know probably one of the top five students every year at high school, and then. By the end of year 12, I, I got a C and it was like the end of the world to get a C as a mark. I was like, oh, my God, this is so bad. And it, it was, you know, so catastrophizing something that's quite unimportant in the long term. So just increased chaotic thinking, increased kind of stress and anxiety, Um by the end of year 12, I was like, what am I going to do with my life? I've got to go to uni. I'm smart. I've got to go to uni, but what am I going to do? Um, going into uni. So finishing up at school, I was probably in quite a relaxed state because the stress of the school stuff was behind me. And I remember between year 12 and first year uni being a pretty good time, pretty normal as well. Um, but then started uni and like, oh, oh, I think I'll do a biological science. Got a really good mark in that. I'll do science. Then a week into that, I went, nah, I don't really like that anymore. I think I'll do nursing. week into that, I went, nah, I think I'll do arts. So I was completely conflicted about what I was meant to be doing and where some people might deal with that. People like me get very stressed and anxious about it and and it's, you know, you think you're meant to be on a path and you're not and that can be catastrophic. 
yeah, and losing all that structure. And then, yep. yeah, you strike me as someone who's just got all the boxes set up and it's just going along and in this early stage of life, just ticking all the boxes and, yeah, do well in year 12, go to uni, get a good job, yep. start a family. That's that's life. And if it's not in that order or the boxes aren't ticked, that it's end of the world kind of stuff like you spoke yep. about. Yeah, yeah. So I continued. First year uni was probably where the really big stuff started to come into play i remember i reckon by the end of first year uni i was pretty emaciated and at this stage you like moved out of home and controlling your own meals and stuff i i was at home during uni i moved out of home because of my eating disorder because i needed to keep it so secret i moved out of home even though completely financially unable to in order to enable the eating disorder to exist in my life um but so during those three years of uni, increasing restriction, increasing exercise. So the exercising was my purging behavior. So I would eat um, a very restricted diet, but I would still exercise in order to make the eating okay. Um, and then by the end of sort of the three-year course of, of uni, which is an arts degree, um, this was pretty catastrophic. And so describe that for me. For someone who's not involved in, in or doesn't have a lot of experience in eating disorders, what does that look like when you say catastrophic? Uh, so I, I, my weight would have been towards 30 kilos. Oh, yeah, right. Um, when, when you're experiencing an eating disorder, it's like living in a fog. Um, everything is slowed down in your body, including your heart rate. Um you're in slow-mo, you feel like you've got perhaps the worst flu in the world, but it's all related to malnutrition. Um, my day would completely orientate around the minimal food I put in my mouth and the amount of exercise I could do to negate any calories that have gone in. So it completely ruled my life. Um, yeah, and it, after uni got a job but quit a job to enable that eating disorder behavior to be central um it's a, just a really maladaptive way of coping with life day to day and it's it, my example is pretty extreme but it it's the reality of a, a serious eating disorder mm. so just going back to like that day in the life of so what would it look like in terms of so what maybe was your heart rate what would it look like in terms of the amount of exercise you'd do and what would a general day food look like yeah so you don't sleep well when you're malnourished so sleep's really patchy your body's in a sort of a constant flight or fight syndrome and yeah, so sleep's affected. I'd be awake super early. I would um, have some coffee for the purpose of caffeine. Um, I don't recall exactly what I ate other than it was minimal and it was mainly fruit and veggies. There might have been a very small amount of yogurt or cheese or something in there as well. Um, my morning would consist of exercise and that would usually be do you remember aerobics Oz style? Or are you too young for that? Oh, it used to, I'm it glad used to say I'm too young for that one, yeah. yeah. There used to be a daily aerobics show on Channel 10. I would do that every day and then I would walk for probably 90 minutes as well uh, and then I would repeat the same in the afternoon. So up to three hours a day of, of exercise. But when you're completely depleted, it's not exercise like you might think of exercise. It's it's dragging your body um, around 
because it, it's in no state to physically exercise properly. Um, there definitely wouldn't be any lunch involved in my day. Um, and then dinner would be a very, um, a very controlled and lengthy exercise of preparing some vegetables without any fat or anything other than vegetable. And then I would take a long time to eat that. I would have to be left alone to eat it. Um, and that would be a, a stressful time of day. And then pretty much wind down, go to bed and do it all again. Yeah, repeat the next time. Were there, I guess, like when you're out walking and stuff, like did you notice people giving you looks like a 30-year-old, yeah. yeah, like people giving you looks and like with family pulling you aside and kind of having a yeah. word to you? Or what was that kind of like at that stage? Yeah, like like you said at the start of the conversation, people don't know what to say around this stuff, so they, they tend not to say things. Like people would sort of tiptoe around that, oh, what's what's going on with you? Are you all right? but not really want to know if you were all right or not or didn't want to go down the path of eating disordered sort of conversation. It's a pretty hard one to have. Oh, but it's so but, visual though, isn't it? Like you can see yeah. that something's there, but you don't want to go there. But strangers would comment to me and would say things like, uh, you know, you just need to eat or, God, how can you not want to help yourself? Look at you. You know, so really nasty, really understandable, but really hard comments coming from strangers. I think my parents, perhaps my brothers, got a fair bit of what the hell is going on with your daughter slash sister and why aren't you doing anything? Um, so it's something that affects the wider group as well, the family. Um, and Brady, people could have been the the most articulate and wisest person in the world come to speak to me about this, I wouldn't have listened anyway. This was my coping and this is what I did. So I didn't know how to get out, didn't know there was a way to get out. So whatever someone said to me, it was brushed aside. Yeah, right. So it might be a good time to like introduce maybe some definitions around. So we're talking anorexia, not bulimia. And is the difference yep. like just, um, you know, one eats and vomits, whereas the other one just, just cuts the eating? Yeah, look, there's there's a spectrum of eating disorders. So I was obviously at the very serious end. Um, and, yes, it was anorexia, but there's subtypes as well. So my purging behaviour was the exercise. Um, so I did never go down the sort of bulimic pathway and, and purge food. I, I would do some really awful other things like abuse laxatives and other medications, but the exercise was purging. Bulimia is more, someone with bulimia probably goes less noticed because they're generally of a more normal body weight, but their purging is, is more along the lines of, yeah, making yourself sick after you eat. But regardless of diagnosis, all really serious and all so um, detrimental to what's going on in your body. Yeah, right. And like mentally, like is it a... Is it a disease, like is it, or like a condition? Like, yeah, what's the kind of, um, I guess, classification on it? It's it's a debilitating disease and it is the most deadly um, mental illness there is. So you might think, you know, and they these bipolar, schizophrenia, etc., extremely awful diseases, debilitating for the person and their family, but the one that causes more death than any other is your eating disorders. So really high mortality rate. Um, 
super serious in terms of physical and mental mental ramifications. Um, for, I'll just go on to the heart situation. I mentioned yeah. my heart rate being low. What got me into treatment was I had a an ECG and it was so abnormal that it would suggest my heart wasn't going to last much longer. And I was admitted to the cardiac ward at Geelong Hospital. And I remember a doctor coming up to me and going, now your heart rate's on 32. And I'd go, Steve Monteghetti's heart rate would be a bit like that. And they were like, no. <laughs> Steve Monaghetti's heart rate would not be like yours, Sarah. <laughs> so, which, I mean, demonstrates how physically you're stuffed, but also how mentally you're stuffed as well when you're equating, you know, a similar heart rate to a, an elite athlete. Yeah, almost like as a cop-out. So it's like, all right, yeah. Monas is around there, so it's okay for mine to be. Yeah, too. that's right. Yeah, and, you, and all, through, all through this time is there's a complete... Uh, ignorance about the seriousness of of the illness and the fact that it's actually taken over your life. So it's only how, in hindsight. Yeah, but how did you get to that hospital bed in the first place? Like, was that you sound like you had so much control around this little world and re- weren't really willing to, um, you know, uh, take help and stuff? But yeah, so how did did it get so bad that yeah, someone's dragging you in there, or what happened? Pretty much, yeah. Look, one. I remember one day walking around. You know, Eastern Park in Geelong, that the botanical gardens, that lovely track. Yep. I remember walking around there in a really, really unwell state, and just looking up at the sky and going, "Can I just collapse and be taken away in an ambulance? Because I don't know how to stop this, and I just need to be taken away. I can't stop walking. Just make me collapse, powers that be. Make me collapse." So it, it did get to a point where I was like, I want to stop it, but I don't know how. At the same sort of time, there was probably a bit of intervention from others in my life, um, and that got me hooked up with a psychiatrist. But then it became uh, people would sort of check in on me and go, oh, I'm all right, I'm seeing a doctor about it, it's okay. So that became a cop-out as well. Um, then when tests started to be done around bloods and heart it really started to demonstrate how physically unwell I was. And, you know, I had one doctor say to me after recovery, I did not expect to see you alive again when I saw those test results. Um, so it pretty much there was a doctor who received my ECG and from that point I was admitted to hospital because it was a ticker that was going to not tick anymore. Yeah, right, get her in here kind of thing. And yeah, when I was in the cardiac unit with 80-year-olds going, what the hell am I doing here? I'm 22. So did they think you were going to just, I don't know anything about this stuff, but did they think you were going to have a heart attack or your heart's just going to stop or like were there murmurs or what was exactly happening with your heart? Well, the, the rate would be, was super low, so it was ticking over very slowly. And I think, you know, with the malnutrition and so on and the stress placed on the body, your electrolytes and everything that causes your heart to fire are so stuffed up that it's just going to give up the ghost. Yeah, right. And is there a mo- – so then when you get in there, do they just start feeding you? Or, like, how does the – like, you've nearly died. How does the recovery kind of work? Do they just keep you there and feed you or – yeah, what, yeah what, happened, what happened was I was on a purely medical unit and I was hooked up to 24-hour monitoring so they could always see my heart rate at the nurse's station. I distinctly remember one night a nurse coming in and shining my, a torch on my face to see if I was alive because my heart had done something that was crazy. 
um, and she wanted to check if I was still alive. It's, that's one of the most surreal moments you'll ever have in your life. Um, those guys in the medical unit, fabulous at their stuff, but no idea about the mental health side of things. So what they did was refer me on, and rightfully so, to the psychiatric unit. I had a psychiatrist who knew I couldn't be treated in Geelong, so I was ambulanced up to Royal Melbourne Hospital. Yeah, super serious, isn't it? And I guess it, like, yeah, because you can just um, do the medical stuff, but if the mind's not there. So was there a turning point, like, a, you know, that lady, as you said, like shining the torch in your face, was there anything that kind of struck you that, like, all right, this has to change, like a, a black and white moment? That was more at Royal Melbourne Hospital. Royal Melbourne had a, a four-bed ward for treating eating disorders. Um, eating disorders are, you know, really underfunded in terms of treatment in, in state services. So four beds is in, are in high demand. I managed to jump the queue because of my state of ill health, got a bed straight away, and from that point on there was a learning about what was going on for me, which was life-changing. Yeah, what, what, yeah, what was that, Lurdy? Yeah, look, I, I was in hospital with some women who were older than me and whose whole life had been eating disorder. Their whole life had been underweight and living to the regime that their eating disorder dictated. And I was like, far out. So even when I'm 40, I'm going to be like this. That's crazy. So just these little learnings that for me added up to, actually, I don't want that to be the case. But I don't know how not to be. So I had to keep really open-minded about um, what the treating professionals um, wanted me to do. And these guys were life-changing. These are the experts in the field. These are psychiatrists, dietitians, psychologists, social workers, nurses who were the absolute experts. And I had to, I guess, hand over some of the control to them and... Um, take their lead because I kind of was at a point where I went, yeah, but I, I can't live this life anymore. Mm, that's pretty good to uh, have that have that learning at that age, isn't it? And it's funny that you said that, yeah, it was it was looking at 40-year-olds who, who you were just like, yeah, that's not what I want to be when I'm 40. Yeah, they, those women were, oh, Brady, they were some of the most intelligent, amazing women I've ever met in my life. And it shows that there's no um, there's no connection between intelligence and the irrational behaviours that go on when you have an eating disorder. Yeah, crazy. So then, uh, yeah, the recovery, I guess, like, was it just a, a slow process? I'm sure it wasn't really smooth because it never is when you, when you come over these kind of things. But, yeah, what did that look like? Well, it's funny, my... Um, mm, my line of thinking was once I knew I needed to recover, I was like, well, I'm going to do this recovery business and I'm going to do it really, really well yeah. and I'm never going to have this issue again, which is a, kind of a bit fatalistic way to think, but in the end it got me there. Um, so refeeding is a massive part of what goes on. So there is very strict guidelines around eating and you take in a lot of medicinal foods, so you, you kind of like your sustagen hospital formulas five times a day, that sort of thing. And there is a very scary so, um, physical effect of refeeding called um, refeeding syndrome, which can really stuff your body around. So you're very closely monitored, you know, everyday blood tests and so on. There's a fair bit of um, 
dealing with the psychological stuff and through medication as well as, as just talk therapy. Um, when you have an eating disorder, you don't know what is normal. You don't know what a normal relationship is with food. You don't know what it's normal, how socializing around food can be normal and healthy. So there's a lot of relearning. I guess that's the social work component as well. Um, but underneath all that, if your brain isn't getting the nutrition it needs, you can't do any of that good work to get through the crap. Mm. So no food to the brain, so you, you can't think straight. So it's really important to get the food in um, and physically restore and then start working on the mental. Yeah, I, I just want you to say that. Like I can imagine it's like the last 5K of the marathon when you've ran out of glycogen and you can't think Absolutely. straight. Yeah, you're living in that sense every day and it's just uh, yeah pretty foggy, as you kind of said before. It's so foggy. It is hell. And it's I thank my lucky stars every day that I know what it's like to feel physically good because you are so far from feeling physically good when you're in that state. I even call it the slow eye blink. Like, mm. I couldn't even blink my eyes properly. I couldn't tie up my shoelaces. I remember I would be looking at an unmade bed and, go, and virtually crying, going, I can't expend any energy to make this bed. Yet somehow, Brady, I could walk kilometres a day and know that I was burning kilojoules and that was a good thing. It, it's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's, um, yeah, and you said, like, how it's pretty... Uh, well, it's the biggest killer. Like, it's, yeah. yeah. Have you got any, like, stats, like how many people it kills a year or kind of, like, percentages or anything? Like, because, as you said, it's like a world that we're not, you know, there's no TV ads about this kind of stuff or no. big segments on the project or crowdfunding campaigns that you see on social media. It's a very kind of yeah. hidden world. Yeah. Look, when I sort of post-recovery and I started working in the field, the, the sort of a bit of a common saying was, uh, yeah, there's no pretty face of eating disorders, so it's very hard to get the PR and the funding machines working, which is just a, it's a really hard reality. It's it's a devastating illness. The I mean, I don't know the stats. I just know it is the most um, deadly of all mental illnesses. Um, your rates of depression and suicide in people with eating disorders, well, you basically can't have an eating disorder without depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts. Um, yeah, it's, and you know, there's a lot of this is so secretive and so, uh, it's not picked up on. Mm. And I guess that, well, two points, it must be really rewarding to be working in that field now for you. Yeah. Look, I, I actually haven't worked in the field for probably 10 years or so, but what I did do working through recovery. So I was two months as an inpatient in hospital. I then attended day patients for about another two months, so a good four months of hospital. Um, I then had outpatient treatment, so that means I saw a psychiatrist and doctor separately to the hospital system. Um, so probably the following year I started to get a bit more of normal life back. Massive, massive learning curve. Like, like I said before, I had to use my peers as examples of what's normal around food and what's normal to eat and and, you know, how to act in social situations. It's a massive learning. It's getting a new identity as well. And when I was in a good enough place, um, I connected with the Eating Disorders Foundation of Victoria and offered my time as a volunteer and I, I got on the helplines and, and um, volunteered on their helplines. I did a, a DVD for them which 
told my story and, you know, for the hope that it, it could show that there is recovery. Um, I then worked in professional capacity, so paid jobs around eating disorders, and I worked around um, a lot of groups of sufferers and just with the peer support model of showing, yeah, I've been through this, it's the crappiest, but you know what? There's another side and it's worth doing the work to get through to it. Yeah. And how much, um, well, sorry, how many eating disorders would be related to sport and like performance around sport? I I reckon there's a whole lot of disordered eating in sport as opposed to eating disorders. So I talk about eating disorders being on a spectrum. I was at the the really shitty, shoddy end, which, you know, is is life-threatening stuff. But at the other end, there's lots of disordered eating around thinking. There's lots of restriction around food. And it might not be noticed by anyone, but geez, your body knows what's going on and the, the head of that person knows what's going on. I reckon that's pretty prevalent. Yeah, so give me some examples of disordered eating. Like what does that, when you sent that through in the email and I just had a bit of a look at it, I was like, I reckon this is like ringing alarm bells for athletes in, uh, in their day-to-day life. What does it actually mean though? So disordered eating is, is not eating to what your body needs. So you've, you've lost the ability to, to recognize when you're hungry and feed that hunger and, and, you know, eat until you're satisfied. So you've lost your body's cues. You Potentially you, you're restricting food in such a way where you might go, like I did, I'm not going to eat meat anymore. You're probably at a level of malnourishment. You might have things like iron deficiencies, which is obviously something I had with my illness. Um, and then on the longer-term ramifications, that disordered eating and that constant under-fueling leads to things like bone injuries, bone mm-hmm. health problems, hormonal problems. Um, and those ones are, for me, I mean, I've had probably eight stress fractures. And I'm not a high-level athlete. I have never run more than 40 kilometres a week in my life. Um, and I've developed a stress fracture in every bone in my leg. So those sorts of things, the disordered eating um, can lead to those sort of things. You don't have to have a full-blown nasty eating disorder to develop problems in those areas. Have you seen it, like just following like the you know running scene in Australia and overseas where you know someone just keeps getting stress fractures year after year and just thinking to yourself that there could be a bit more to this? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm always kind of a bit sus, I suppose you could say. You kind of go, oh, oh, you know. Or, you know, you see what appears to be quite an emaciated athlete and you kind of go, oh, I wonder how long she's going to hang on for. Um, so, I, but that's just me and that's because of my background and because of my awareness and also because I feel for the person. Like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, they must be in a bit of a tricky headspace. Um, I think Eloise Wellings has been someone who's had a lot of stress fractures and spoke about having disordered eating um, on the Australian scene. But there's people like uh, there's recently a, a girl in in the UK by the name of Bobby Clay, I think, who's come out with her story of uh, she's got osteoporosis at a ridiculously young age because of malnutrition. Um, there's Tina Muir, who was another British athlete, like I think maybe a 235 marathon runner, um, and she spoke about her amenorrhea and how that affected her health. Um, Ali Kiefer in America, she's recently done an awesome article called My Weight Has Nothing to Do with How Good a Runner I Am. Um, 
so it's becoming more it's being talked about more and the honesty and the conversation around it it's only going to help yeah because i guess eating disorders in um and disordered eating like in 2018 is a bit different with the the internet and social media and that kind of body image on instagram and how many followers you have and what people comment and all that kind of stuff compared to when you experienced it yeah i i look back and go geez i reckon it would have been 10 times worse if i if this had been going on for me now like just social media can be so damaging it's got its pros but it's got its cons um yeah, it's so much body image stuff. Um, you know, I really, I really have a dislike for the diet culture and the, um, yeah, you know, I see merits in reducing sugar, but things like, yeah, I quit sugar. Yeah, why, why do you want to cross out a whole food group? You know, let's have a better relationship with food. Let's not demonize certain foods. So I, I kind of, yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty outspoken about being someone who supports health at every size, rather than a particular body size being healthy and and being successful. Yeah, I'm not sure. Have you, um, Hanny Olsen? Can you remember her as a runner? Yes. Yes. Yeah, she won the Melbourne Marathon the year that my brother won the Mar- Melbourne Marathon. Yeah, right. I remember just reading her blog. I just yeah came back to me now that you're talking about, it, and she was talking about. Um, she judges her health on her hormones. Like that's, you know, not a, the weight on the scales or how many Ks you're running a week or how you look in the mirror. Like it's always, if her hormones are healthy, she's healthy. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think part of um, reframing things for health is important. So not about weight, so more about let's have a look at the markers. Are you socially connected? Have you got a good relationship with food? Are you moving? You know, those sorts of markers are so much more important than the weights and the numbers. The thing is, though, society society perceives a small body as a really positive thing. You know, look how we respond to people when they lose weight. Oh, look, you've lost weight. That's fantastic. You know, it's, it's kind of like I make such a conscious decision not to respond to that because I don't think it's necessarily what we should be focusing on yeah and society really boxes it though doesn't it like i'm um yeah i struggle to keep my weight on especially trade through summer and then i'll have people you know i was at a triathlon last night and oh you're looking thin and you need a good steak and all this kind of stuff and i'm i'm smashing down food but it's (laughs) yeah if i was 20 kilos heavy i'd be like oh you've blown out a bit you know what i mean it's this perfect like 10 kilo gap you've got to be in otherwise you're getting cut down either way well, I've had some – even – I've been the same weight since recovery, so I've, I've been much the same weight for 20 – almost 20 years now. But I still – I'm still small. I'm a small person. My family's small. It's the way I am genetically. But, uh, you know, I, I have had some awesome comments too. Um, one in particular stands out. I was at my desk eating, and I'm always at my desk eating. And I've had a, um, a colleague turn to me and say, I have never – seen anyone so small eat so much food and I thought wow imagine if you said that to someone with an eating disorder and it really affected them like for me it's a uh, moment like whatever <laughs> I don't care I will continue to eat to my appetite regardless but you know so people feel the 
feel they can make comments about the way you look when you're little as well. And that, like with you, they, they can make comments, whereas, yeah, I don't know if people would go there if it was the other end of the spectrum. Oh, 100%. If I started lipping off at people like, geez, you look heavy, mate, like, yeah, stop eating the steak, like, the same, exact, <laughs> the same statement just flipped around. I'd be getting yeah. Uh, yeah, chased through the street or, like, getting named and shamed on social media for calling people fat or whatever. Like, it's, um, yeah, it's yeah. funny how you can comment on – Carly gets it as well. She's only very small and genetically, I don't know, she's probably – 48 kilos if she's uh, dripping wet kind of thing. But, yeah, same thing. People at her work or in the street will say, oh, she needs to eat more and she looks too thin. And, yeah, but if she said the same thing to overweight people, she'd be in quite a bit of strife. Yeah. I had another one. I was introduced by someone at the the local gym um, and they said, oh, this is Sarah. She's a really good runner. And their response to that was, oh, look at you. You've got the perfect runner's body. And I'm like, what the heck? Mm. (laughs) to do with it like I you know let's let's take the way we look out of the equation people yeah, and I think I'm glad you brought up uh, Ali Kiefer before because that's a name that I hadn't heard about before New York Marathon where she went out and ran, you know, 229 and came fifth and just come off the back of winning Doha Half Marathon a couple of weeks ago in 70 minutes and 40 seconds. And um, she doesn't look like that traditional runner's build and she's been great in kind of documenting documenting it as you said in that blog and um yeah i think it's something really good that can come out of it yeah it's we presume too much with weight we presume that smaller is better we presume that everything on the inside is is a1 when people are of a lower body weight but actually no you know someone who's of a larger body weight who moves and who eats well is likely to be far more healthy than the person who's of a lower body weight, perhaps doesn't do any exercise and, and shovels down, you know, crappier foods. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so many assumptions made about the way we look in sport and in society in general. Yeah, and I think when people start going out and um, letting their legs do the talking as well, especially in athletics and running, it's kind of really solid evidence as well. Like, it, yeah. yeah, it's uh, and, you know, because we bagged out social media before, but... Without social media, we wouldn't be able to see her tweet and uh, be inspired by her on Instagram and things like that. So it's definitely got its pros and cons. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, you you can filter what you see on social media, and I know I do. Um, So you you see the stuff that makes you feel good, but you filter out whatever makes you question who you are or the way you look. Get rid of that stuff from your feed. Yeah. Hey, um, when you came back, well, talk me through the running journey now. So you've, like, recovered from the eating disorder. When did, like, running come into your life a bit more? Yeah, I, with recovery, I've always been someone who's been super active. So from ballet to gym to running, there's never been a time in my life, and sometimes this has been to my own detriment, where I haven't been an active person. So I had to really rein in the obsessional side of that and retrain myself to have a healthy relationship with exercise and of course that came with time and probably 10 years ago I sort of started to run a bit more um I had Ewan eight years ago so that was a even through pregnancy I kept really fit with gym classes and etc and then probably picked it up when he was about two so took things a little bit more and it was my brother Rowan who said Sarah we need more women down at Geelong region you join next year and run for the women. And I'm like, uh-huh, I don't run like that. <laughs> no. Um, but 
did follow his words of advice and just found this love for a club and running in a club environment and a pride in the singlet and the tradition of the club and really proud of my brother's achievements in the club. So just loved it from day one and then have just become more and more involved and probably more and more serious about my training and how I go about things in that last sort of six, five years um, to the point where I, I'm a, a state champion for a Masters 5K at the moment. But I'm, I'm likely to lose that title soon. <laughs> yeah, once you've got the title, it stays with you forever. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've my best running's been in the last two years. Um, you know, I've, my PBs are something that's come about when I've been 39 and 40. Um, so, it, you know, it's that you're never too old and um, if you love it, do it, be passionate about it. Um, and I do, I just love it. I love the club involvement but I love I do love getting up at five o'clock and knowing that I've got a run on that day that's pretty special were there concerns when you entered that more serious kind of club like going to Athletics Victoria meets and you know kind of pursuing higher goals that it would become a bit more obsessive again and that eating disorder would resurface nah I, that's so far away from who I am as a person now it's it's the cliche of that was a lifetime ago so there's no elements of that remaining in my life. And while, yeah, I've still got probably an obsessional personality, it doesn't play out in maladaptive ways. So it was more to do with enjoying it and finding it, finding your tribe is probably what you'd say, rather than it being something that I took seriously um, and, and took to another level that way. Yeah, and I think when you watch you race and you see you at those meets as well, it's pretty good evidence that you've always got a massive smile on your face. I'm looking at your Skype photo now like you're pretty up and about and, um, yeah, you're a fun person to be around in a what can be sometimes a competitive environment. Yeah, I'm often the one kind of dancing on the start line rather than being serious, ready to start their, their Garmin. Mm. Um, yeah, look, I try and keep it really fun and I don't kind of get nervous around races because, you know, got a pretty good perspective around it uh, but don't get me wrong I work hard and like I said I can only run 30k's a week so I'm pretty proud of what I've achieved on very little running. That's yeah, pretty impressive hey and uh, like long-term effects like from the eating disorder like is there anything that you know still makes it hard to exercise or like physically in your body? Yeah there are long-term effects so I, I suffer depression and anxiety and have been on medication for 20 years and that's fine. I'm a really healthy person while I remain on medication. And if I have to take that uh, to the day I die, that is fine with me. Um, you know what? You wouldn't question someone who has diabetes taking their insulin. So, you know, I take the same attitude with drugs for mental illness. Um, so that's that's ongoing. That is something that I'm really well with with medication, like I said. The other thing is I, I mentioned... Probably, I think I'm at eight stress fractures now, which is uncanny on 30Ks a week. It's ridiculous. Um, but my bones, I've ruined my bones, you know. It's, there's what the good foundations that should have been laid down when I was sort of late high school into my 20s, they weren't laid down. So things break down pretty easily and I have to be super cautious around any hurt that I feel. 
Um, and then the endocrinological stuff has been pretty prevalent for me. I have a lot of deficits and take medication for, you know, the parts of my um, system that doesn't work properly. But you know what? These things are pretty minimal. It's not life-threatening and it's not a big deal. It's treatable and I'm, you know, I'm bloody lucky to have the life I do. Yeah, I'm glad so Long-term effects are there, but yeah, long-term effects are there, but I deal with them and I manage them, and it's fine. Yeah, I love you brought up that um, mental illness and the medication. Like, I'm not sure if you're listening to any of Osher Ginsburg's podcast, and he often says yeah. the same thing. Like, he's trying to be off it and on it, and yeah, he kind of documents it really well about how he's going with his anxiety. And um, yeah, it was quite interesting. I've heard him use that same example. It's yeah, if you've got a if you need a Band-Aid on a sore in your knee, it's exactly the same as taking medication for mental illness. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a functional, hopefully fairly good person when I'm on medication. Um, why would I mess with it? I, I once tried to go off maybe 12 years ago. It was a disaster. Um, you know, I had serious panic attacks, awful physical um symptoms of withdrawal etc etc and you know I thought well what's the harm in taking this 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 lets me be me um and the quality of life there is you know there's a stark difference between being depressed and anxious and being functional and well yeah I wanted to pick your brain I was just talking to Carly at breakfast this morning kind of telling her a bit about your story and stuff and she really wanted me to touch on she got into running to lose weight which I'm sure a whole lot of people do and it's almost the wrong reason but then yeah I guess what's maybe some of your advice about making people fall in love with the sport um, rather than seeing it as a bit of a weight loss strategy yeah I think um, yeah it's, it that's a really common thing and that's that's fine to start a sport to to you know, lose some weight. But looking at the bigger picture stuff, how does it make you feel? How how is it when you've how good do you feel when you come back from that run and the endorphins are flying, you're going, Yeah, I went further than I did last week and that's awesome. Um maybe making a bit more of a social thing as well. So giving it a different focus I think is awesome. Um and I think that's what club running can do as well. Um, and just taking away any association with appearance, I think, is really healthy. So I, I think about my body in terms of its health and how it operates. I don't think of it in terms of how it looks or what weight it is. So, you know, I, I'm struggling. I broke my toe last year. Um, so I'm like, jeez, oh, you know, I've got to lay off the running a bit. But what do I need to do to make that toe okay? And what can I do to feel good with the exercise that's not going to be detrimental to it? Nothing about weight. It's a different focus. Um, gee, you know, what's going to help me perform the best I can at, at my training session tomorrow rather than, oh, I've got to get out there because I've eaten this, that and the other and I need to get rid of it from my calorie intake. So just giving it the focus of how you're feeling rather than what it's doing in terms of weight. Yeah, and I guess that's really mature and I'd expect that kind of answer from you, but... If we're looking at people in between 16 and, and 25, that's not going to um, come into their minds at all. And does that kind of worry you, the way that society is going in that age group at the moment? Yeah, it does. I mean, um, recent sort of surveys show that body image is like one of the top three concerns for that adolescent age group. It's a huge concern. 
and I mean, you've got to understand the adolescent brain is still developing and growing and, um, you know, the adult decision-making isn't even, you can't even make great adult decisions when you're an adolescent and the brain's still doing its growth. So that's a, it's kind of a different, it's a whole different ball game. But again, I think we can all focus on feeling good and um, what it does for us on the inside and taking that focus on the external appearance away and just in whatever whatever we're doing. Yeah, and maybe like you'd know much better than I would, Sarah, like resources. Like, are there programs in schools dealing with like, um, yeah, these kind of body image issues and like are they on the internet or what, you know, what can people do if they've got a daughter or a son or whatever or themselves that are kind of relating to some of this content you're talking about? Yeah, well, the number one stop for me was the Eating Disorders Foundation of Victoria. They're an awesome not-for-profit that has helplines as well as information, great website. Um, there are lots of programs, just programs around like you might have heard the Resilience Project. That sort of stuff is really helpful, building up resilience. So it's not necessarily talking directly about maladaptive um, eating behaviours and exercise. It's talking about um, a, a balance in your mental health and building resilience in day-to-day life. Headspace is the the youth mental health network where that's a really that's a comprehensive um, multidisciplinary setup where people can um, get help for any number of adolescent um, mental health issues. There's also um, power, uh, bodies that look after sort of training for teachers, training for other health professionals around the issues. So there, there are a lot of resources out there. Probably a lot underfunded as well, but there's there are things you can do. Yeah, right. And um, and what's the future of Sarah Walker looking like, running wise? And like, I know you just said when you sent me an email, you kind of put it really well. You said like, although you've been through this, it's led to a life that you live now, which is a fantastic life. But yeah, what's yeah. what's coming up? Yeah, look, what I've been through has shaped who I am now and made me the person I am. So I'm in a really contented kind of spot. Look, in the immediate running future, I'm, I'm wondering if I try and take on the 5K title again in March. Um, but I've got a bit of quads tendinopathy at the moment, but, you know, see how that goes. Um, I'm looking forward to cross-country season coming up. And I'm just looking forward to continuing to be healthy. And I appreciate my health and what my body can do, like, uh, you know, no end. I just... Good health. I, my, you know, my saying is, you've got nothing if you haven't got your health and your happiness, and that's. I think my life is a pretty true testament to that. Um, yeah, just, uh, just keep on keeping on. Yeah, well, I think that's pretty good. Uh, pretty good saying, considering your, you know, your keep on is pretty positive and you're fun to be around and. Yeah, if you just keep doing that, I'm pretty sure you're going to live a pretty good life and the people around you are going to be pretty happy as well. Yeah, I've got good people in my life and I always have. And, you know, I credit them back 20 years ago with recovery, but keeping me sane now as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's good. Hey, uh, I always finish off. I think you know this question's coming, but have you got a mantra or anything? Can I guess maybe this has probably changed for you pretty significantly over the years that you try to live your life by or a quote or a... Um, yeah, philosophy or some kind of saying. Yeah, and it, it comes down to that sort of how we perceive people and 
I like to say, don't presume to know. Don't presume to know what's going on for someone, and that relates to don't presume that because someone looks a certain way, they're a, a healthy mind or a healthy body. Just, you know, learn about what other people have, are going through before you, you sort of make a judgment. Just don't presume to know. Yeah, very wise words. I think uh, I think Benny, when I, we first had him on the podcast, he said something very similar, or see yourself in others, or something like, yeah, along those lines of, yeah, just when you see something with people, there's always more to it than just what you're seeing on the outside. Yeah, so true, and you, you know, I remind myself of it all the time, but um, I do have to say I'm not related to Benny. Well, that's what I was, I'm actually going to put this back a week, because people might just start a, start thinking I just get the Walker family, and like, <laughs> had Troy Walker, Benny Walker, and now Sarah Walker, and I'm like, people are just going to cut me off now, like, I'm sick of this guy just getting people from Echuca who are, who are his mate's cousins. I was going to put on a, one of your social media posts, uh, hashtag not related, but... Um. <laughs> we'll definitely use that when we put this one out next week, for sure, I think. Um, yeah, very good thinking. Hey, uh... You love his way, yeah. You've been listening to his music. Ghost, that song of the year for 2017. Oh, yeah, he'll be happy to hear that. The whole EP's good. I, uh, I find yep. sometimes he'll knock on my door and I'll have it like playing in the background and I'm like, geez, I better turn this off before I answer the door or answer the phone or whatever, just because I, I get a bit embarrassed that I listen to his music and he's also a good friend. Nah, trumpet it out, I say. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Nah, that's good. And Sarah, like, obviously we've hit some pretty... Um, you know, some heavy topics here today. Like, are you reachable to, to talk to about this kind of stuff if someone relates to it or somebody knows somebody that, you know, recommends this podcast episode to them? Like, what's, yeah, yeah. anything anything you can help with? I'm happy for my email to be out there. It's, um, it's something I'm pretty passionate about and I give time to where it's warranted. So I'm um, sarahlwalker at me.com. If you put that in the show notes, that'll be that's fine with me. Yeah, certainly can. No dramas at all. Well, thanks again for your time, and yeah, it's been a it's been a massive hour of learning for me. As I said, kind of immersed in, you know, you get in your own little worlds a bit, and as your mantra is, you sometimes just forget about that people have their own stuff going on. And yeah, as yeah. I said at the start, like we've had a bit to do with each other, and I never realised this kind of stuff. So it's good. That's the value of the podcast, actually, just sitting down with people for an hour and hearing their stories. So thank you so much for sharing. No, no problem at all. Keep up the good work. I love your
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 